Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Father, um, crying lots of tears, feeling lots of sorrow, and Lord, anxiously awaiting the day when you'll wipe those tears away. God, I pray that 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 hope is what we're marked by, Father, that we would be bold enough to hold on to that hope for what is to come. The unimaginable beauty of what it'll be like for you to wipe those away, Father. But until that day, may we also, may we also stand in the truth that you've called us to be your hands and feet. And there are tears that need wiped away in our community, Father, and may we be those hands. Not just now, not just in a moment of silence, God, but going forward, Father. We believe that your church is the hope of the world, that you are the hope of the world through your church, God. That you will accomplish your purposes through her, through us. And may we be a people who live boldly enough that that would be true. God, be with those who are grieved today. We pray your love over them and around them, Father. We pray you wrap them up in a peace that surpasses all understanding. And Father, we thank you for your word that we can come to it, that we can find that hope, that we can find truth, that we can also find space to grieve and lament. And that's the space we enter into this worship service today with, Father. God, move in our hearts. Soften them, embolden them, because they're yours. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, like I said earlier, my name is Jason Simon. I'm not typically up here. Our pastor, Jeremiah Smith, is typically up here. Um, he's out today. He sends his love um, and um, graciously asked if I'd be willing to step in. For me, that's a huge privilege to be able to step in and be on this stage with you all. So I want to thank him and honor him for the way that he leads this church. And, and thank you all. Um, and thanks for being willing to be a church that wrestles with hard things and true things. Um, and a church that holds one another up when, when that's difficult. So... Um, we, a little bit about myself for those of you who, who are uh, maybe new or visiting, um, I'm the student minister here, as I said earlier, so I work with our, our middle school students through our college students directly, and I serve the church in general, um, but I really specifically lean into the youth and college ministry here uh, with an amazing team of people who, who show up week in and week out to do that, and it's pretty awesome because, you know, on a day like today, I'll sit upstairs and have or we will, our team will sit upstairs and have conversations with 11-year-olds about faith and life and, you know, sometimes Pokemon cards and things like that. And then um, we'll get back together this evening with college students and wrestle with the things that college students wrestle with. And, you know, you, you get a 11 to 24 is a pretty big spectrum in there, and we're grateful to be able to do it. It's fun. Um, I wish you all could do it um, because uh, you see God work in some amazing ways through some really bold um, young people, and it's pretty awesome. Um, so that's a privilege. But like I said, every now and then I get called on um, to come in here um, to, to stand before you all and lead our whole congregation. Not that most of you are older than 24. I know that mostly we're not. Um, but I do enjoy getting to come in here and work with a little bit of a different demographic and um, lead you all in Scripture. So we're going to be in the book of Exodus. If you want to um, turn your Bibles there in a minute, we'll, we'll get to our reading for the day. Um, a little bit more about my life is that I have two young children. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Our life is full, and it's fast, and it's awesome. And um, for those of you who have had kids in that age, um, let me just talk about bedtime for a minute. 
Um, if you're a, my kids have gone to bed easily since they were born, that's amazing. Keep that kind of stuff to yourself. Because some of us didn't get that. Um, some of us, bedtime is like a, a WWE wrestling match. Um, and I've heard the things, like you need to have the routine. you got to do the bath time and do the story. We've done, we've done the things. We've done them forwards and backwards and inside out. Um, bedtime is just tough at my house. By the time we finally do baths and we brush our teeth and we get them settled down, uh, my boys sleep in the same room, um, and they'll get quiet. And there's this moment of, man, we did it. Like, we've made it. All that's left is for them to just, just sail off into sleep. That wasn't so bad. Every night. And every night, I'm just wrong. Because it's the false quiet before the questions. And you know, if you have young kids, you know the questions. When you're laying there and it's silent, and all of a sudden your five-year-old, you can tell he's looking at you even though it's pitch black. You just know his eyes are open. And he says, Dad, what's God's favorite smell? And you're just like, excuse me? Like, that's what's on your mind right now? I thought you were asleep. Like, I was planning. I've got, I've got dishes. Like, I still got to take a shower. I haven't showered all day. I've got all these things to do. I need to send some emails. Like, we're talking about God's favorite smell right now. That's where we're at. And it's funny because it can make me, at that point in the evening, I'm just done. I'm like, man... Probably coffee. Like, that's my favorite smell. And, right? But, um, but in, all, in all seriousness, I'm, it can bring frustration because I'm like, you're just trying. Like, you're, just, you're, you're actually raging against bedtime at this point, which in turn feels like you're raging against me, which makes me rage against my own bedtime because I'm not getting all my stuff done. And I feel like I just am going to explode. And then his little brother's chiming in from underneath, and he's like, you know, saying three-year-old things. Um, and for those of you who don't have kids, I know you can still relate because you may not have someone else doing that, but maybe your brain is that way. Like you, you lay in bed and then all of a sudden like you're hit with the, if you're wondering what God's favorite smell is, maybe that's it. But, but oftentimes it, it manifests more like, man, I had those things I didn't accomplish today. I didn't send these text messages today. Um, I didn't respond to those emails. I've got so much to do tomorrow. Did I turn the dishwasher on or did I not turn the dishwasher on? And your brain just, just takes off um, running. Um, there's a, a theologian and writer named John Ortberg, and, and he coined this term sunset fatigue, like that moment at the end of the day when we should be the most present um, for the people that we love, but we're just, we've had a day. We've done work. We've gone through all of it, and we're just tired. And then we're not, we're not present with those of us there in the evening. And, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. You know, in our culture we're wound up all the time because we should always be doing more things. Like, I should have done more at work. I should have responded better to those people. Um, I should be leading my family better. And we're just more, 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 and better, better, better. And we just spin off. And culture's telling us we should be doing more. But if we would stop and listen to our bodies and our minds and our spirits, they're exhausted. And we don't have space to process that in our normal day. And and we're just really tired. And it's really an ancient problem. It's, it's nothing new. We think it's new because we have technology. This problem's existed for millennia. You see it all through the scriptures. Um, if you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes, um, that's a very common theme in there. You have 
the Kohelet, the teacher, right? He, he does everything. He just, he does everything you can do. And at the end of the day, he just says, it's meaningless. It's just meaningless toil. It's a chasing after the wind. That feeling at the end of the night, like I'm just never quite done. Like I'm just trying to grasp the wind. It's this, this sunset fatigue. So like I said, we're going to be in, in Exodus chapter 20. And, and it's interesting because it kind of talks directly to this. Um, we've been talking the last few weeks. Our pastor Jeremiah has led us through um, the story of Abraham and Sarah and their marriage, um, them as parents, as husband and wife. And now we're looking at their people. So the generations that came after them were, were directly diving into their story. So I'd like to read from Exodus 20, um, verses 8 through 11. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And most of us in the room understand where we're at in Scripture, even if you're not a believer, you've heard the Ten Commandments, you've heard of the debates around them and, you know, courtrooms and all that stuff. We're, we're dropping kind of right into the middle of the Ten Commandments here with this commandment on Sabbath. And that's really what we're going to unpack today is this idea of, of Sabbath and of rest. But before we get to that, I want us to understand what kind of culture these commandments are being spoken into. So we're going to unpack a little bit of, um, of the culture that this was coming out of. So we're here, we're at Mount Sinai. The Jewish people have just um, been liberated from Egypt, where they were slaves. Um, they were enslaved for hundreds of years in Egypt. Um, they were enslaved to Pharaoh. They did hard, toilsome work. They were this once prosperous, upcoming people um, who had been enslaved and trapped in this work that never ended. You know, Egyptian culture is one of the richest cultures to have ever existed. Um, and all that wealth pretty much rested at the feet of Pharaoh. I mean, they had, he had so much wealth. They were building cities to just um, contain his wealth. They had these, um, you know, wealth back then was oftentimes measured in grain and produce. And they're building entire cities just to hold the extra produce um, that the Egyptian people um, have grown and that's been harvested through slave labor and those kind of things. I mean, just wealthy, almost beyond imagine. Um, on the outside, Pharaoh looked powerful. And like I said, he looked wealthy and he looked prosperous. But when you look at the history within that, you can see there's quite a different story told, whether that's, you know, looking at biblical history and, and looking at just the history around Egypt that we know about Pharaoh and that community. Um, it's as early as Genesis when you see that Pharaoh actually has a fearful heart. This is something that pervaded this line of Pharaohs, is this, this idea that we're never going to have enough. And the reason that that existed is because um, Pharaoh was God to his people. Like, he was a self-proclaimed God. So, as a self-proclaimed God, he had power and authority. And I promise we're going to tie this back to Sabbath. Um, but he has this power and authority. And obviously, if people view you as having power over the land you need to make sure that you have enough produce and things to provide, even if something arises like a famine or something like that. And there was this fearful 
um, place within Pharaoh's heart that led to this vast accumulation. I mean, like I said, just unimaginable amounts of grain, entire cities full of just storehouses for the excess that Pharaoh had. Um, so he begins having people harvest more grain. So again, he's not obviously doing it. Um, the slave labor's doing it. So they're building these cities. Um, other nations are coming in and trading for this grain. So that's also building Pharaoh's wealth because if there was a famine in another part of the world, they knew about the wealth of Egypt, so they would come. That's actually how the Israelites end up in Egypt. Um, they were experiencing famine, and they go there to be provided for. But in this process, to keep amassing that amount of wealth, you have to build systems of exploitation. And that's what Pharaoh did, because all of this culture was built on this idea of slave labor, of free labor, not just cheap labor, but free labor. And he's just amassing, they're amassing stuff. Um, and the, the thing was, if we could just get a little bit more stored, you never start out wanting to have extra cities of stuff, but it's always, if I could just get a little bit more, then I would feel safe and secure. If I could just get a little bit more produce, a little bit more grain, then everything would be fine. And in doing that, it just spirals into this huge economic pyramid with the slave labor of the Israelites at the bottom, at the base of that pyramid. Um, it says in Exodus 5, um, Pharaoh gave this order, you are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. So he's telling the, the taskmasters this. He says, let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Make the work harder for the people so that they may keep working and pay no attention to these lies. He was relentless. This fear created this system that was relentless, that came from his heart and totally kept these people in bondage. And that is the work that the Egyptian or that the Israelites lived in. They would literally work themselves to death and then just be pushed aside and others would come in. And this massive, massive system. It's from that that they are pulled. It's from that that God frees them, that level of oppression that we almost can't even fathom. Um, it's from that that they are pulled, and then you find the Ten Commandments. So they're here, and God's essentially giving them the Ten Commandments, and he's, he's addressing them as, I am your God. I'm now over you. I'm with you. And this is your new way to relate to me as your God, as your king. So there's Ten Commandments. The first three of them, you can essentially think of them as um, how the Israelites are to view and relate to God himself. You have, you know, have no other gods before me, make no graven images, do not use my name in vain. So God's setting himself up as holy, as above them. I am holy, I am removed. You'll have no other gods before me. You can't even misuse my name. And then the last six commandments are, are where he really starts to spin this whole culture off of Egypt. And this is where we're going to start to get into this idea of Sabbath. Because in Egypt, it was more, more, more at the expense of your neighbor. It was accumulate at the expense of those around you. Here, the last six commandments are all about relating to your neighbor. And about how to do that in what we would call a godly and just way. So your last six commandments, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, um, don't even covet your neighbor's things. 
because that's not love of the other. So in this new, in this new kingdom that God is setting the Israelites up for, with him at the head, he's given them two sets of commands. One, this is how you relate to me. And two, this is how you relate to your neighbor. This is how you care for other people who are with you. This is what it means to truly follow me. This is what it looks like lived out. And right smack in the middle of that, you have this command on the Sabbath, which seems somewhat out of place. Like, I'm God, relate to other people this way, right in the middle is like, take a day of rest. And like, cool, that sounds good. But it seems a little bit out of place until you really dig into it. Um, Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. I want you to listen for where he's talking about how we relate to the Lord and how we relate to others. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word Sabbath in Hebrew is Shabbat, and it means to stop. Like, it, it literally means to stop. And that's what the Lord is saying here. He says, don't do any work on this whole day. This whole day is holy, it's to me, and you're not to do any work on it. You cease. The Israelites had to cease. Even when they're wandering through the desert... They still ceased work on the Sabbath. You know, God was providing them manna from heaven. And if you took more manna than you needed for that day, you would wake up in the morning, there would be manna, and you would gather it. If you took more than you needed for just that day, the next day it would all be spoiled. It would be bad. Every day you just took what you needed, except on the sixth day. On the sixth day you were allowed to gather enough to last you through the seventh day, and it wouldn't spoil that's how important rest was to God. That even in their wilderness wanderings, he still wanted them to block off this time because it's holy. He says it's holy to the Lord. You Sabbath to God. It means to stop. It means you do it, but you don't just stop because it's, it says to the Lord. Your Sabbath in verse 10 is a day to the Lord your God. It's a day to him. And then verse 11, the very next verse, it grounds this practice. It says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to rest to the Lord your God. You won't do any work. And verse 11 says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore he blessed it and he made it holy. We don't, we don't have time to unpack all of the creation narrative. But anytime in scripture something is tied back to creation... Um, the authors are doing much more than just uh, supporting it with the text. They're making a call back to, to the rhythms of, that God established at the beginning. So here they're referencing this rhythm of six days of work and one day of rest. And I understand that there's a whole bunch of different interpretations about the first three chapters of Genesis and what that looks like. Um, just ask our college students. We spent like, I don't know, three months on it um, last fall just walking through the first three chapters of Genesis, looking at all the different um, interpretations of it. You know, one of the main ones is 
whether the word day literally means day or does it mean eon or age, what does it mean? And that's such a funny argument to me because we get, it's important and, and I actually love talking about it. And if you're into that, then please, like I was a science teacher before this, I'm like, I love the intersection of faith and science because they don't really intersect, they just, they're overlapping. That's a different conversation. But we talk about it like, man, seven days is a short period of time and seven ages is a long period of time. And are you a short time or a long time person? And that's so funny to me because God is, he's, he's infinitely powerful, right? He's, he's all knowing and completely capable. So even if God just took six days on creation, that's still a really long time because he could have just done it in an instant. Even if he took six literal 24-hour periods, for God, that means he's working slowly. Even to do all this, he's taking his time. And there's a really, um, a really unique um, interpretation of that that I read recently that says, you know, if God took his time with creation, maybe we should view that as a sign of his non-anxious presence. That God wasn't anxious about creation. He just created. He could have spoken it all in an instance, but as the songs say, he took his time fleshing out the wonders of light and carving the caverns of the black deep. Whether that was days or ages, he took his time. He wasn't hurried. He went about it slowly. And then he paused to rest, to look at it, to sit in it, to take it all in as good, as very good, actually. He took time to sit with it. And here in the Ten Commandments, he's not just inviting his people into it. I hope we understand that. He's commanding them into it. He says, you need to rest. Look at these rhythms I've set up. It would be good to stop. And I hope we also understand that this is a direct call out of the systems of Pharaoh. The, the Israelites never rested ever. Like it wasn't part of their routines in Egypt. They just worked until they died every day. I see some of your eyes. I think you're like, yeah, I relate to that. They, they just, they never stopped. And God is intentionally calling out those systems of Pharaoh. Okay. So now if we jump ahead, we know that like they're about to enter the promised land. Some things happen. They actually don't get to enter the promised land. And they wander through the desert for a very long time. So long, in fact, that that generation that heard those commandments, that received them the first time, they've all died, except a couple. And there's a new generation that's raised up. And the new generation, through all these desert wanderings, um, they get another chance. So they get to stand and look at the promised land again and decide, are we going to go into that or not? Is God going to lead us over into that or not? That's basically where the book of Deuteronomy falls, is you have the Israelites standing on the precipice of entering this new land, but you have a people who grew up without Mount Sinai. They didn't hear this command from God to rest. They, didn't, um, they would have known it, but they didn't have it in the moment. They also didn't grow up in the systems of Egypt. So if you want to flip there, we're going to read in the book of Deuteronomy, verse 5, um, verses, uh, or chapter 5, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. What's happening here is Moses is repeating the commandments, but there's a slight difference. So this is the command on Sabbath, but I want you to listen for the difference in the, the one that we read just a moment ago. 
Deuteronomy um, chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The beginning of this command is pretty much the same. Observe the Sabbath. It's to the Lord. Six days you'll labor. Now, if you're a boss in here and you're like, God's saying six days is cool because I just get five out of my people. Just wait. We'll get there in a second. It's not really what he's saying. But he says six days you'll labor. One day you'll rest. Um, and that's for you. And he says, just like he said in the first um, round in Exodus, hey, and this is for others. This is to be for your, your wife, your, your servants, your children, even the foreigner among you, even the outsider. This rest, this Sabbath rest, this rest from God should be so ingrained in what you do that this rest from the Lord extends to these people who don't even know him yet because it comes from you, because you've welcomed them in. You're to do that. You're responsible for it. It goes to everyone. Now, like I said, these are, these are desert wanderers. But they're about to enter a land, it says, flowing with milk and honey. A land that's not just going to be able to provide for their needs, but also their wants. There's so much that's going to be there available to them. They've never known that. They have no idea how to even process the excess that's going to happen. So this commandment is almost set up like a warning. Again, the whole book of Deuteronomy, it's a repeating of the law. And I think it's because Moses knows that when we enter into excess, when we enter into so much more, it's easy to lose sight of the fundamental things. It's really easy to lose sight of the basic things that we've been called to. So he repeats it for them. You're going to have opportunities. There's going to be land. It's going to be so fruitful. You're going to be able to just accumulate and grow, and it's all going to be there. But you, you have to still stop for the Lord. You weren't created to perpetuate these systems of Pharaoh and work and work and work until you die. There's more here for you. Keep this in mind as you enter this new land. I think that brings it a little bit closer to home, right? When we're talking about Pharaoh, he's like a self-proclaimed God. That's like, man, I would never self-proclaim myself as God, right? But this idea of like taking hold of your own future, your own destiny, like securing things for yourself— in the future, whether that's, you know, financially, and man, if I could just get that next promotion, like, everything would be fine. Like, if I could just add a little bit more to my income, like, I would be able to rest. If I could just accumulate just a bit more. Again, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to have financial security, but when it becomes our God and we continue working and just going towards it and doing everything we can for it, to the point that we're not also taking care of our neighbor— that we're maybe doing things that are questionable to get to that point. Or maybe it's not finances, maybe it's, maybe it's relational. Like, man, if I could just get in with this group here in town, like, I would have it made. My family would be set if we could just get into these different circles. I know a lot of you feel that way about me, and you're like, man, if I could just know Jason a little bit better. I'm an easy guy to know. We can do it. You just come serve in youth. You can get to know me all you want. We're there Sundays and Wednesdays. Um, no, I, I kid. Um, but... 
the point is, Pharaoh seems really far off until you take a step back and you look at the culture that we've created and the culture that we live in. And this idea of just needing to accumulate, whether it's people, it's followers, it's money, is the fact that we lay down at night and we have these fears about what's going to come ahead and those fears need us, they push us to, man, I just wish I had done this or I could do this or tomorrow I'm going to have to do more so that I can get to this point. And we, we are constantly wound up. And my, my point in all this is to say, what if our never-ending pursuit of these things, including people, is actually what's holding us back from what would fill those, that spot or who would fill that spot on the one hand. And on the other hand, what if our constant pursuit of those things is, is leading us to neglect or oppress the people around us? Sabbath calls those things to mind. What if the way we think to get ahead is really what's holding us back? And what if God gave an answer to that here in the Ten Commandments? Now, if you're like projecting this out into the next, you know, 35 minutes when I'll finish. No, I'm just, we won't be here that long. Um, but you're probably going to be like, well, Jason, you're going to tell me the Sabbath every day like, or every week. Is that, is that practical? Like, is that even biblical? Like, do we, do we really have to do that? Well, like, hang with me. Don't project with me, but I, I do want to follow this, and I do want us to take the words of Scripture for what they are, and that's words of Scripture. So, you know, maybe you're saying this is, this is ancient history. You know, does that even apply? Well, if, if you go to the New Testament in Mark um, chapter 2, Jesus says, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And to unpack that for us really briefly, um, first century Jews needed to hear the second part of that. You know, man was not made for the Sabbath because they kept the Sabbath. These are Sabbath-keeping people. He's talking to the religious elite. They knew how to Sabbath. They knew the rules around don't buy, don't sell, don't trade. You can't do this kind of work, but you can do this. It's okay. They knew all that, and they kept it. But he was saying, you've kept this in practice, but you've not kept this in your heart. You, you weren't made just to keep these laws. He says, no, the Sabbath was made for you. Like, God has given you this. We, our culture, we don't need to hear the second part of that. We need to hear the first part of it. The Sabbath was made for man. It's like we're so anxious and exhausted all the time, and we wish that there was a solution, and it's, it's like God's saying, well, there is. It looks like rest. And rest looks like trust, and trust looks like faith, and that kind of makes us uncomfortable. Because if we're resting from our work, that means we're trusting that God has purposes that are going to carry through even when we are not working. For us, the call is the Sabbath is made for man. Our days are a litany of school assignments and social engagements, even church activities and social media scrolling and all these ways that we're just trying to keep up or get ahead, endless phone calls and texts. And we reject this whole idea of resting because we hustle, like we're a hustle culture, right? We don't rest. We don't rest well, at least. But remember, the Sabbath command is grounded in creation. And it's saying, hey, God knows what it is to work. He knows what good work is. And he also knows what good rest is. Because resting is a good work. Because you can sit back and look at the work you've done and say, it's good. Um, 
In the New Testament, Jesus is said to be Lord of the Sabbath. Walter Brueggemann, who a lot of this that I'm sharing today comes from a, a theologian named Walter Brueggemann. And he says, you know, the divine rest on the seventh day made clear that Yahweh is not a workaholic, that Yahweh is non-anxious about the full functioning of creation, and that the well-being of creation doesn't depend on our endless work. The well-being of creation doesn't depend on our endless work, on our never-ceasing I've heard this weaponized, if we can be real honest for just a second. Um, I've seen places where, where we've said, you know, hey, Jesus is your rest. So you work from that rest. So you, you really shouldn't be exhausted because Jesus is your rest. You know, Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And then we rip that verse out of that whole chapter and we throw it on a t-shirt or a coffee mug or at someone who's just really exhausted. And yeah, that's true. Like, Jesus is our rest. We should embody him. You know what Jesus did when he was tired? He took naps in the bottom of boats, in storms, and was totally just knocked out to the point the disciples had to go and wake him up because they were so fearful. And he gets up and he calms the storm. Um, and then he's, he almost comes off a little frustrated with them. Like, why is your faith so little? Have you no faith? Have you no faith that God is watching out for you even when you don't have control on these external things? Jesus rested. It says in Luke, he often got away to pray. He would literally wake up before the sun came up so that he could sneak away from people. <laughs> if he needed to do it, maybe we need to do it. Maybe we need to unplug a little bit as well. Now, I'm not, I'm not arguing you know, that this is a strict day and we have to stop everything we're doing and we need to reinstitute blue laws and all those kinds of things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a conversation worth, ha worth having, though. I'm saying that God was frustrated not with the sacrifices that the Israelites brought on the Sabbath, but with the fact that they were meaningless. That they were spending their Sabbaths planning in their minds how they could make up for the day lost of work. He calls them out throughout the minor prophets time and time again because they never just stop to be with him. They never stop to be with him. So, if we did it, just if we took a Sabbath, what would it look like in 21st century, is that right? That's right. 21st century America, what would it, what would it look like to even say, maybe we're going to try this out? Um, well, let me tell you what it's not. It is not a holiday. So it's, or, or I'm sorry, <laughs> we watch a lot of uh, British cartoons in my house. It's not a vacation. That's the word I should have used instead of holiday. Um, my son calls them holidays. Uh, <laughs> what we do with holidays, like the one coming up tomorrow, um, is uh, we work and work and work, and we have that flag planted in front of us, and we push and we push and we push towards it, and we're exhausted, and we're just, we're just ground down to nothing, but we know that that vacation is coming. And we take a vacation, and maybe it's a couple days at the lake, or maybe it's, you know, a, a week in, you know, Europe or somewhere like that, and then we're like, man, I'm all better, and I'm ready to go back. But as you're coming home from that vacation, you're already planning your next vacation because you know how exhausted you're about to get and we just live in this cycle. 
And it's like, what we're doing is not working. Now, vacations are good. And if you have space on a trip to Europe coming up, family of four, we don't take up that much room. Bedtime's tough, but we can make it happen. Um, vacations are good. Sabbath is not a vacation. It's also not a day off. So we said earlier, six days of work. We've set up a five-day work culture so that you can have a sixth day to do your personal work. So five days of professional work, a sixth day of doing my, you know, cutting the lawn, going grocery shopping, cleaning the house, prepping food, doing all that kind of stuff. A Sabbath is not sitting at home mowing your lawn all day and doing those kinds of things. That's work. It's good work. It's not bad work. Work is good. Um, but that's not rest to the Lord either. And now some of you might be like, well, I really enjoy my job. I don't mind going up to the school on a Sunday. You may not mind if you're a teacher. I know you've got a grade, you've got stuff to do, but that's not what we're called to here. It's a day of rest and communion with the Lord. Here's how um, John Mark Comer, he writes a lot on this. Here's how he frames it. Um, he says, What would I do for 24 hours that would fill my soul with a deep, throbbing joy? that would make me spontaneously combust with wonder, awe, gratitude, and praise. You know, anything that elicits that kind of joy in us has to be just saturated with the goodness of God. How can we deeply enjoy what God has given us? Um, my family practiced Sabbath actually 24 hours, which I know is crazy. Not legalistic, not tied down to rules, filled with delight in the Lord. I mean, filled with a day where we knew we were still going to have friends over. We were going to invite people in. We would have a big dinner that we would prep before so that we didn't have to like cook the whole time and then do dishes the whole time. We would have it prepped. Um, I've gotten really into candles. So we would light a candle um, and we would sit down to a meal and we would enjoy it. We would go to bed. And then the next day we would just wake up and do things that brought us deep delight as a family. We would talk about scripture. We would read Bible stories with my kids. We would play games and go on walks. Um, I live attached to my cell phone. It's awful. I'm getting better about it. And part of getting better about that was literally putting it in another room. Um, I used to tell my students when I started working, hey, you can reach me anytime. And I started saying, hey, you can reach me most of the time. Because it's good. Because if I'm here and someone has a crisis, that's really important. But what does my five-year-old see me doing all day long? At some point, we have, to, we have to look at our actions and say, man, I say I believe these things and honor these things, but do my actions show that? We can have a whole conversation about what it might actually look like if you want steps to practice that, or even just enter into it. If you feel so overwhelmed by the idea of this, and you just want to know what it would look like to unplug a little, I would love to talk with you more about that. Um, but I do want to hit on some what-ifs. Okay, first of all, as we transition to that, Sabbath is for rest and it's for worship. If you were to sum it up in two things, what did the Jews do on the Sabbath? They rested from their work and they worshiped. In their regular activities, they offered to worship. That's Romans 12, a life renewed. Everything, God, that I'm doing is worship to you. In the word Sabbath, the Hebrew word Shabbat, which translates stop, it also means delight. And that's what's really cool. Because that's what God did on his seventh day. He stopped and he delighted in the work he had done. And then he commissioned us to go and do it in his rhythms. It's rest and it's delight and it's trust. 
Sabbath reminds us what God has done for us, that he's enough. It reminds us that work is good. It's not wrong to work, it's wrong to overwork. We have a lot to do. I know you have a lot to do. Jesus had a lot to do. There's a difference in having a lot to do and having too much to do. Most of us have too much to do. Sabbath helps us delight in the world. Especially on a week like this, we need that call to remember that there are bad things in the world, but the world is not all bad. And that's true. The world is not all bad. We can sit with the weight of darkness and also still ask God to bring awe at the sunset and trust that he's got intention for both. Now, I, I know the what ifs. What about my kids' busy schedules? I've got a young family. We're too busy. With all due respect, that's right. We're too busy. We are way, way too busy. Take your kids out of something. There are so many statistics. If you're a parent in here, come talk to me. There are so many statistics about how it's not helping our kids for them to never have any downtime. You're like, my kid needs to get a D1 scholarship. D1 kids get rejected all the time because they are the best athletes and they are not rounded out people at all. My kid needs to get into Ivy League schools. They do need to get into Ivy League schools. Ivy League schools don't just want test grades. They want, they want humans. They want kids who know how to not be a robot and how to be a human bring humanness into the process. They need kids who have sat with themselves and learned how to process their emotions and things so they don't drop out the first week because they don't know how to handle a new environment, because they don't know how to be alone with themselves as they're learning to make new friends and those kind of things. It's okay if we pull them out of something. I understand that coaches and, and you know, um, sports clubs and stuff schedule activities on days that you might deem as sacred to your family. Stand up to them. Like, you, we're, you're the parent. I'm a parent. We have a right to say, my kid's not going to do that. At best, the coach might be like, hey, you're right. Let's back off a little bit. At worst, like, nothing changes. But if you don't do it, what are you teaching your kids? Like, what are our kids seeing is the first thing that we take out of our schedules when we get over busy. It's sacred time. It's the easiest thing to let go. I see it all the time with these kids across the street or at different, different universities here in town. They get so busy with their first semester, the things of faith go way to the wayside because they're the easiest to let go of because they're not foundational. It's not part of their life rhythms. Their faith hasn't become their own. It's been their parents. And now they're in a new space and they realize they don't have a faith of their own. They just had their parents' faith and their parents aren't here. Sabbath helps our faith become our own because it gives us time personally to delight in God, to do it as a family, to rejoice in the things, to wrestle with the questions. My kids aren't just trying to stay awake at night when they're asking deep questions. It's because they've had no time during the day to process those questions. We've had no downtime in our lives for them to wrestle with these deep things. The only time they're paused is when I've got my elbow on their stomach, like just stay in bed. And now they're trying to process all this stuff. That's a joke. Um, they, uh, we, we haven't created any space for our, our children to process these things. And I, as an adult, haven't processed those things. So I'm exhausted. They're exhausted. They're asking me questions. I should be fully present. Like, I, I'm a dad. I'm a, I'm a student minister. That's my moment. What's God's favorite smell? Let me tell you. God created smell. But instead, I'm like, dude, I, it's coffee. And I just move on. Because I'm tired. 
They're tired. We're all too tired. We're so tired. When are we going to listen to our bodies, our, our spirits telling us we're so tired? We're not created to live like this. As someone who you all have trusted um, in partnering with you in the spiritual formation of your teens and your young adults, I, I hope you hear me. Our kids don't need another select baseball game. They don't need another, um, another night at an after-school club. They don't need another point on their ACT. They need to be deeply formed. It's terrible. I had a youth minister the other day say, I tried to process the shooting in Texas with my kids, and they said, we're just used to it at this point. Why are we going to spend a whole night of youth on this? No, we, can't, we can't let our children be numb to these kind of things. We can't let it just be part of the news cycle that just goes through on their feet and they move on. They need space to process it. They need downtime and rest. They need the margin to be able to ask us deep questions, and we need the margin to be able to answer them and to sit with them even in an I don't know. Sabbath gives them that space. This idea of rest, it's almost like God set it into the rhythms of creation so that we would have space to process when these kids go to counselors, one of the first things they have to do with them is teach them to breathe. And I, I don't say that in jest. I say that seriously. The counselors will teach them to watch their breath, to breathe in through their nose really slowly, to breathe out through their mouths and just watch the breath leave their bodies to cope with anxiety. Because we've gotten so wound up as a culture, we don't even know how to breathe in a way that can calm us. Our kids need it. And we need it. The other part, some more things. We're going to wrap up here. I have a lot to say on this, if y'all can't tell. Jeremiah gave me one week, so I'm cramming like a whole series into one week. But we're almost done. Um, here's some more what-ifs. What if I just can't get a break? I know some of you don't have parents who live in town. You work all the time. Um, you're, you're divorced. You're the only one taking care of your kids. To that, I would say get a community of people around you who can help with that. I would say join a D group. That's not a plug for this church. That's a plug for things that I've seen work in my life in amazing ways. When I'm at the end of my rope and my wife's sick and I've been with the boys all week and someone just shows up at my door with food and says, you need to leave and go get some rest, I'm going to take the boys. That gives you a kind of life that you can't imagine. It gives you some margin. It's vulnerable. If you've never done it before, it might be scary. Join a D group. Get in a Sunday morning Bible study. I promise you. You have to be intentional about it. But the community there, we're made for it. We crave it. For the rest of us, uh, or some of us, you're like, I'm not overhurried. Like, I feel like I live my life at a good pace, and this has been a wasted sermon. No, that's awesome. Live your life at a good pace. Go find someone who's not and help them. Lean in. Be the person who shows up at the doorstep with food and says, hey, I have some extra margin. Can I help you? Hey, I want to bring you meals so that your family doesn't have to cook all day on Saturday so that you can just spend some time with your kids. Be those people. Look out for your neighbor. Let that rest that you've experienced overflow to those around you. For the rest of us, even when we feel like we don't have enough margin, Sabbath says you do. Sabbath says God knows your needs and has seen them and is going to work through them, and you can rest and delight in that truth. You don't need to do the side hustle. You don't need to spend a couple more hours at work. You need to just rest and delight and be present with him. The final argument that I want to I mention is I know that some of you will say, you know, one part of Sabbath is that the Jews didn't buy things. So part of Sabbath is you're not going out. You're not, it's not a day's shopping. That's not delightful. 
because you're saying, like, this is my day of rest. I need you to serve me. I need you to be at work so that I can rest. Um, that's, not, that's not biblical either. It's this idea that we're extending rest to everyone. And I know that one argument to that is, well, people need to work. They, they need that seventh-day work. I should go and spend my money on my day off so that I can support them. And I want to say that's exactly my point. <laughs> what if God called us out of Egypt, this great system of oppression and bondage where the work never ceased and accumulation never stopped, only for us to create a system where the work never ceases and accumulation never stops? What if we're perpetuating that same system? Sabbath gives you space to process those things. I know y'all are busy because I live it. I had a college student tell me just a couple, well, she's not a college student anymore. Um, I had someone in my life uh, say just to me very recently, hey, Jason, you, you're always talking to us about these things, but when it comes to rest, I don't ever actually see you do it. How can I, how can I even trust what you're saying to me if you don't do it? You talk about being called out. Come work with college students. It's great. We love it. Because it's true. It's really true. James says, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. We need space in our spirits, in our hearts. We need the margin in our lives to be able to process things that happened this week. To be able to process grocery store shootings. We also need space to hold on to hope that there's more than that. And if we're just running ourselves ragged all the time, we don't have that space. God's called us to a life of more than anxious toil. He's called us to be non-anxious people, to trust that he has it all in his hands. I'm going to pray for us as we wrap up. Heavenly Father, may we, um, may we do as Jesus called in the book of Matthew. May we come to you. He said, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, we know that you're that rest, that you are true rest. That salvation is a gift that we can rest in. But God, may we also learn to stop and delight in you. May we be bold enough to trust you with the six days of our week as we give you one, as we give you space in our lives, Father, whether that's a full day or just encompassing this idea of Sabbath, this idea that we are people who can rest knowing that you care for us, knowing that you're watching out for us, God, that you know our needs before we even do. May Sabbath reframe how we engage the other six days. And may you be glorified and worshiped in all of it, Father. And it's in Christ that we pray. Amen.